Thank you again for coming to today's Friday Gallery Talk and welcome to anybody who has just uh, joined us. Today we're very lucky to have Gwen Ryan with us today. She is our sculpture conservator and has worked very hard on Palimpsest as well as um, all the sculptures and installations in our, um, in our exhibition for uh, Over Under Next. Um, as the sculpture conservator, Gwen is also responsible for the conservation of the outdoor sculpture garden, contemporary sculpture and installations, and time-based media. She also serves on the program committee for the International Network for the Conservation of Contemporary Art North America and has fulfilled various roles on the Electronic Media Group Board for the American Institute of Conservation, including holding the Tech Focus Conference here at the Hirshhorn last year. Tell us more about her experience with Anne Hamilton's Palimpsest. Please help me to welcome Gwen Ryan. Thank you. Um, we are going to be going into the installation, so I'm hoping that you will take a moment to put on the shoe booties, and we'll be discussing why that's so important <laughs> when we're inside. Well, this gives you a chance to sort of just look around. There's a lot to take in in this room. Um, this is a piece, uh, as was mentioned, is called Palimpsest, which refers to uh, the ancient manuscripts that would be made of vellum that would be reused, and they'd be re reused by washing them, um, washing off the old ink, but you would still always have a little bit of evidence of what was written there previously. And what Anne has, is doing in this room is uh, bringing together a lot of elements that all... Whoops. Oh, okay, speak to the issue of uh, memory. Collective memory, shared memory, loss of memory. Um, what you see on the walls are literally hundreds and hundreds of handwritten notes um, of fragments of memories written by um, uh, acquaintances and friends of the artist. So it's sort of a collection of her uh, memories of her acquaintances. The same notes are embedded in beeswax and that's what consists of the floor at this moment. <laughs> um, highly obscured under layers of wax. Again, more fragments of memories written by her acquaintances. Above the door is an oscillating fan. And I'm gonna talk a little bit about this element because it has some key conservation um, components that are associated with it. Uh, this is not the original fan. The original fan is being treated at the moment. The original fan was her grandmother's fan. And I have photographs of that here, of what that would have looked like um, currently in the conservation lab. And it was very important that this fan be the fan that is used as it relates to her own memory of her grandmother. As the fan oscillates around the room, it lightly flutters and activates the memories on the wall. And over here is a vitrine of live snails um, feasting on two heads of cabbage, uh, somewhat representative of the brain and the loss of memory. So it's very multi-layered conceptually, uh, very complex work, but also complex in its care and installation, as is probably obvious. It takes a very long time to uh, install this work, but also the preservation issues are quite um, interesting and unique. And I'm just wanting to address each element, but I'm wondering if anything stands out to you immediately that would be very uh, much a challenge for a conservator in terms of caring for this work. This one's falling off. That's <laughs> so the paper, so that she's noticing that, the, that they're falling off. Exactly, they're, they are very loosely pinned to the walls and that is definitely an issue that happens here. The paper, paper is very fragile. 
But this paper in particular is newsprint. And as we know with our newspapers, you, it does not take them very long to turn incredibly brown and brittle. Um, so this is probably the most ephemeral type of paper that she could have chosen. In addition to choosing a very ephemeral paper, she artificially aged it and put it out on her lawn to make it turn yellow. So she's already accelerated the aging of this paper. Um, as a conservator, the approach to caring for the, the paper is really we can't stop the degradation, but we can slow it down. And the ways to slow it down while it's on display are to lower the light levels, but when it's not on display, we actually keep them in our cold storage unit. Because as you lower temperatures, um, you slow down uh, the rates of reactions that the chemistry of the paper is, is undergoing. This exhibit would be in the permanent collection? It is in the permanent collection, yes. It was acquired in 2004. And actually that helps me lead into some of the other issues with this piece. When this was first installed, um, and I want to show examples here um, of Anne, along with the, the what you're seeing in here, she also, uh, with the acquisition, threw in a whole bunch of these extra tiles that she had made of the beeswax so that we have these as, as reference of what they should look like. Because as you walk on them, and without booties and without the treatment that they currently have right now, what was happening, and I mean, her approach to this was it needs to be beeswax. You need to have the smell of beeswax, the look of beeswax. It can't be something that's pre, you know supposed to artificially simulate that. Can you think of what qualities <laughs> um, beeswax has to it that make it inappropriate as a floor material? Exactly, it's soft. Yes, and it, when something's soft, it you picks also, up. When heat, also, if you heat it, wear it off, you can see the print much more clearly on these than you can on the Very good point. So basically, you've got a material that's so soft, it's going to pick up all of the dirt and lint and everything that's on the bottom of people's feet as they come in. Um, it is uh, malleable, so it, it deforms and flattens as you're walking on it. When we received this piece into the collection, it had been on display numerous times in the past. And the approach that had been taken each time it was on display was when it was finished and put away, it, the surface would be scraped clean. And all the dirt would just be scraped off with a razor blade. And what happens over time is the surface changes immensely. It's no longer got this smooth uh, cast surface to it, but also you lose material and the memories become more and more visible. There's a finite number of times you can do that. So when we were installing it this time, we took the opportunity to meet with the artist and try and come up with a much longer term solution we want to be able to display this piece as many times as we can. It's a very interesting piece. We want to be able to keep it up for a while. If it is unprotected wax on the floor, the maintenance is very, very labor intensive and we're slowly eroding away the surface of the wax. So we brought in the artist and talked with her about how these had different, how these have changed and migrated to something else um, over time. To her, it was important that we first remove the dirt, but then also that we reapply more wax. And she was disconcerted by how dark and discolored the wax had become over time. Well, that's what happens to artwork. It, it, that, as materials age, certain materials 
showed their signs of, of age by discoloration, darkening. We sort of have to accept that, especially with the paper. Wax is going to um, become darker over time. However, we did think, well, this is our opportunity to bring the artwork back to a level that she feels is acceptable and then address the surface in such a way that we won't need to scrape the top off. We won't need to reapply this wax the next time. Let's work with the artist while she's here, get it to a level that she feels is acceptable, and then we can create a new preservation plan for that. So for two years, myself and, I hardly myself, mainly the help of some very diligent interns, um, spent very painstaking hours uh, slowly removing the dirt. We didn't want to remove too much of the material. Um, we did this, I, I don't know if you've ever had the experience of, you know, having candle wax or something fall into your carpet, and you put down a piece of paper, you rub an iron over it, and it pulls it right out. So using that concept, we took a uh, porous uh, polyester material, laid it on the surface, rubbed it warm iron, tacking iron, over the surface, and just lifted off that top surface of dirt. Then with new bleached wax, a whiter wax, we were able to go over the surface and um, make it a little bit more opaque than it was. Um, well, now the big question was, now we've got this clean, we've got it at a level that the artist feels is acceptable, how do we protect it? Does anybody have any ideas of what, what would be some of the things that you could do to protect a wax floor like this? Some, some, some types of glaze, right? Right. Right. Something over the surface. Right. So we, we did explore. Well, could we you know put an overall covering over you know a, a transparent covering that people could walk on? But that was deemed inappropriate. Um, originally, the artist had been against putting any sort of coating that would alter the appearance of the of the wax. But in the end, the practicality of this piece. Um, sort of outweighed that, and she did suggest to us, let's explore putting some sort of coating. Well, this is a huge challenge because wax is a natural resist. Wax is what you put on a surface to keep a coating from adhering. So trying to determine what would work was, you know, you look at any coating material and it says, please remove all traces of wax and grease before applying. So we did a number of mock-ups, and we made our own wax tiles. We did a number of tests with a variety of different adhesives and discovered that we were able to use a very matte, water-based polyurethane. It was very important to have it be water-based. We did not want the solvents to eat into the wax. And it minimally changed the appearance of the wax. It has allowed for, this has now been up for nearly a month now, and we have not had to do very much extensive um, maintenance for this floor, which is very, very exciting. And the most exciting part from a conservation standpoint is everything is reversible. The wax, the uh, coating is very easily removed by just applying tape to the surface and peeling it off because again, wax is a natural resist. So we're very excited that that worked <laughs> and it is saving us hours and hours and hours of work in the long run and protecting the artwork in a way so that it won't continue to migrate further and further away from um, her original pieces. I'd like to talk for a second about the fan. Um, so the fan, 
it, of course, is a key element of this, of this artwork. And the fact that it needed to be her grandmother's fan was a key element as well. What happened is we, you know, prior to installation, checked the fan, made sure that it worked, was fine. We plugged it in. After about a week, it started smelling a little funny and needing a little extra push to get started when we turned it on. And we thought, well, you know, this is not safe. Let's remove this. And we contacted Anne and asked her, should we close the installation? Is it incomplete without it? Is it better to have no fan rather than put in a, a, a replacement fan? And she thought about it and she said, you know what? Just temporarily, while the fan is being worked on, because it must be my grandmother's fan, <laughs> put in a fan that is that looks of the right age. And fortunately, we have a uh, conservator on staff who is a big fan of old fans <laughs> and older um, objects from the uh, mid-20th century. And we were able to um, just pull this from his office, actually. And it works great. But it is just a temporary solution. Well, clearly, I'm not a fan repairman. And I know very little about appliance repair. So it's necessary for us to um, have parts of artworks being treated by non-conservators. We do have um, a very talented appliance and uh, appliance repair person who's also an artist who assembles found old appliances into operational um, sculptures. So, and it, he does a number of uh, treatments for um, the other Smithsonian museums. So he is currently our fan repair guy um, who will be restoring the internal motor, but also replacing the original fabric cords with new fabric cords. We don't want to take it away from its time period. We're still intent on having it look as much as possible like the chipped old fan um, of Anne's grandmother that definitely shows signs of use. And actually, I'll just pass this around here so you can take a look at that. Very last, and elephant in the room, is the snails. Um, I am just curious if anybody uh, has any thoughts about the long-term preservation of the snail um, uh, vitrine and its contents. <laughs> so, go ahead, yes. I'm assuming they're not the same snails that No, you, you are correct, you are correct. But there is, but there is maintenance of the snails, right? Over, they are not the same, she was saying, she was assuming they're not the same snails as the, uh, that we acquired, we did not acquire snails with the artwork. Um, these are, uh, if I can get the name correctly, it's Helix Aspergia snails. These are just your typical garden snails. When Anne first conceived of this piece, she was living in Ohio. And snails are everywhere in Ohio. Well, since that time, these snails have been deemed as agricultural pests by the um, Department of Agriculture. And in order to order snails, you must have a permit from the Department of Agriculture that allows you to have them sent to you in the mail, which is a, quite a long process. Once the snails are in-house, there is a lot of maintenance that, that is uh, you have to consider because snails unfortunately don't really care for cabbage. 
they'll eat it, but that's not the only thing that they would like to eat. They like a variety of things, broccoli, potatoes, carrots. So we have teams of snails. We have a team of snails in the conservation lab that is eating what it loves to eat. And we have a team of snails here in the gallery that's our, and they rotate. They rotate every week or so, um, so that the happy snails can um, eat to their delight, while then they, they will rotate into the, and be on view, um, feasting on the cabbages. Part of the maintenance is, uh, poop removal <laughs> and uh, replacement of the cabbages each week as well So, because um, those start to rot. So there are a number of considerations with this piece in terms of preparing for installation, preparing for, um, and I think this is hilarious, the stipulation for the snails in the lab, they cannot be, excuse me, I'll move out of your way here so you can get closer, they cannot be within 50 feet of an open door. So even if they're in a vitrine, the rule is, is that if there's 50 feet between the vitrine and the open door, they move slowly enough that you'd catch them before they make their way out. Um, but this has been a very um, challenging piece. It was one that um, there was a lot of discussion about before we installed it, talking about uh, manpower and timing, but also a lot in terms of uh, preservation and discussion with the artist about, it is clear to her that it must be these garden snails, so it is necessary to go through this permit process. It is necessary that you have her grandmother's fan, um, and that sort of dialogue is just invaluable because there's no way we could identify this on our own without being able to have that discussion with her. and what we're identifying at the Hirshhorn is the, the necessity to have the artist's voice at the center of our treatments as much as possible. And we've actually established this year an uh, artist interview program where we are, um, as part of the conservation lab, which is very exciting, it is seen as a conservation tool, and when we have the opportunity, and we will have the opportunity actually tomorrow morning to interview her again and get her take on sort of how we've been approaching this, um, to sit down with the artist and not just once, but multiple times throughout the life of their artwork and suss out their approach to their artwork as it changes over their lifetime and also as the artwork changes over its lifetime. So, does anybody have any questions? Yes. yes. Considering the tremendous amount of work in the preservation of this exhibit, fastidious work, all of that would imply that the exhibit has a very significant meaning and significance. Uh, is the uh, artist leaving it to us to reflect on that meaning? Or is this something that you can make some comments on? Or is it not outside your let me just re repeat a little bit what he was saying, in case you didn't hear that. He was saying that in light of the uh, intense work and focus that it takes to care for and install this artwork, it um, shows its, its relevance and importance to... This to must be a very erase. significant... Yes, this is very significant... Uh, ...piece of art to justify mm -hmm. such pains. 
Right, so, and so go ahead. Yeah, so therefore, I'm, I'm wondering whether the meaning or significance is something that the artist intends for us to reflect on, uh, or whether, well, there is some commentary outside. Yeah, yeah. Actually, I'm, I'm loving this question because I'll be meeting with her tomorrow and I think yes. I'm gonna ask her that. Yes. That is a, actually a and wonderful question. How shall we understand beyond the brief description the significance of this project, which has justified so much attention mm -hmm. to preservation? And I think one thing that you're, you're definitely hitting on is the, uh, well, the, the benefit of being a conservator um, in being able to work this in depth with an artwork um, is something that we start to take for granted. But one thing that it teaches us with each piece is we actually get to ponder the artwork, I think, a little bit more than the typical visitor who comes in and, you know, because we're exploring the materials at such an in-depth level and their relevance to the work and their, their uh, the weight that they play in that particular artwork and you really see each part and how they all come together and I think um, we're a little lucky in our profession to be able to uh, reflect that much on one yes. particular artwork. But it's true, there are, um, this was a, quite a big undertaking and it was definitely a big discussion to determine if it was something we could take on. Yes, thank you. Thank so you for much. that question. Thank you. Yes. Um, it's, it strikes me as a, a rather ironic that a piece that in part at least signifies the degradation of memory requires so much upkeep in order to keep it mm -hmm. at a status quo. So I guess my question is, is that something that the artist thought about when, when she created this, or is it something that sort of happened after the fact? Well, you know, I can't speak for her, but I, I will say that from speaking with artists about their work, it's clear that it's a case-by-case -case basis whether they're thinking about the preservation of their work or not, you know? And, I, and whether they're thinking about it when they're making it um, is, I, w I don't want to say it's irrelevant to my uh, role, but over time, many who aren't thinking about it begin to, as they see their pieces age. And I think younger artists, and I'm very much generalizing, but I think younger artists will tend to not be thinking about that as much. And it's not their role to, that's not their job. It's our job as conservators to approach the artwork as something that we deem worth preserving in conjunction um, with the artist's input as well. Thank you. Yes. So is she specific about the order of all these pieces of paper and the order of the tile and the size of the room, so, the doorways? Yes, great question. So she's asking how specific is the artist about where the placement of things. So the paper has no restriction in terms of, you know, this, this one needs to go next to this one. There's not a specific order. Right, and the tiles are numbered only because it's helpful in placing them in, in a configuration and underneath the vitrine there are grooves and it has a water system that has to go underneath the tiles so there is a, a, a system of channels. So they're numbered just for our ease of, of knowing um, how that was gonna line up against the wall. The room size, and this is a very fascinating thing, is was dictated, she, um, conceived of and created this piece for an existing gallery space that was given to her. 
and it had a, an artwork already in it, and it was just, you know, we're not going to tear down any walls. You can have this space. You can fill it with what you want. And she did to those dimensions. So when we recreate the installation, we actually have to build the room to this dimension because this is what the floor fits. Yeah. Here at the Hirshhorn, two times, but it do, it has been installed numerous times previous to to being this here. Is exactly as it was before. Exactly, except with a protected floor. I have yeah. To say. <laughs> yes. um, I'm sorry, I got a little late. No, that's fine. This, but can you tell us a little bit about the papers, like uh, if she did all of the writing on them, or if other people, how they were collected, or like what their significance? Right. Is. So, so, Right. So this work, and just in case there were other people who came in a little bit late, this artwork is about uh, memory, collective memory, and the artist's individual memory, uh, loss of memory, um, and the notes are written by the artist's acquaintance, not by the artist herself. So it's basically a collection of her acquaintance's memories. And they're all fragments. So if you read them, you won't see a beginning, middle, and an end to a story. They're supposed to be just thoughts and, and fragments of their memories. And sorry, the pins that come with them, too, were those, like, were she, was she specific about that? So the, the specificity of the pins, it does not need to be, a, you know, these exact pins. You can go purchase them. But the goal is that they're loosely held. And you don't want this big, giant, you want sort of a map pin, map so that you're not hiding and obscuring and detracting from the appearance of the paper. But they must be, this is why they're not pinned tightly. They're supposed to be sort of fluttering and loose and being able to move. Exactly. Yeah. So, yes? Um, following up on the pen question, it looks to me as though each time it's installed, the pen is put in a slightly different place on the paper to make a new hole. Hmm. Um, and I'm wondering, what happens as they move around, the friction of the paper against the pen probably opens the hole up a little. And they're all center hung, so at some point, do the papers become uninstalled? Yeah, at some point, really, this is, if I'm not a paper conservator, but if I were, I would be having a heart attack right now. I mean, this is, it really is, if you could pick the most difficult material to preserve and, you know, because they'll eventually get so brittle that just the uh, motion of the wind will cause them to fall apart. You know, I mean, you can imagine as paper gets that old, that, this is why our goal is to slow down that process as much as possible. When, and again, the other issue that we encounter with installing this piece is this it's graphite and it smudges. Mm -hmm. So just the handling of the pieces at the time of installation also affect, you know, we affect the artwork Greatly, yeah. Each time it's installed. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Yes. Some artworks evolve, and let us say some of these pieces of paper disintegrate. I could imagine the artist might decide, well, I'm going to leave the space. Now I won't cover the wall so completely. And that too can have an interest. It can be provocative. Why is there a rectangular space? Right. Making you think about the aging exactly. of the, right. And I, I think that these are all the, the questions that um, it's really essential for us to ask her as she's here, you know, because we want to make sure that we're 
not missing the forest for the trees with the piece, you know? Are we trying to preserve something that really isn't meant to be on some instance, on some level? And I'm not saying that it, specifically about this artwork, but that that can come up. That, well, no, that's not the point of this work. It is meant to disappear over time. So these are all, all very key points that we struggle with on a, on a regular basis. Yes? So um, touch, this sort of touches on our, our focus on the artist interviews and so forth. With contemporary art conservation, because uh, contemporary art is very often um, has conceptual aspects and, and components that are not related to the material that are necessary to preserve, you're touching on a lot of these as well, just the uh, intangible parts of the artwork and, and the preservation of those. We find that it's very, very important to um, be in touch with the artist. Unfortunately, sometimes we miss that opportunity and um, the artist is no longer around. We do rely heavily on um, artist foundations. Um, uh, we try to collaborate with our curators as much as possible because they will be much more in touch with um, the overall oeuvre of the, of the artist and how this piece, particular piece fits in to that larger body of work, um, but it is—it's uh, definitely a challenge for us and a key part of how we approach it because we're trained to pay attention to the materials and the aging of the materials and to slow that down. But again, as we've been talking about here with contemporary art, that's not always the highest priority, and it really is essential for us to make sure that the piece can be seen, even if it does cause degradation to the artwork just being on view, we don't want to just hide it away. Uh, you know, what's the point then? So, yeah. Some, if I may just say a footnote to what you just said, some artists rely on nature to collaborate with them in the art piece. Right, and chance, and, chance right, exactly. and the passage of time. Exactly. So, yeah, so, uh, collaboration with, with the curatorial voice is very, very important as well. So, underneath, oh, good question. Actually, when she first installed this piece, it was just a bunch of loose tiles set on the floor. And I think, and I don't know at what point, we've tried to pin down when this happened, but it was long before it came here. Um, the tiles were affixed to plywood. So they are, so now they're not, all these individual tiles were set down, they're larger sections of plywood, and I think you can see the, the seams of those, but it makes it much easier to install and much easier to care for. Um, you know, being able to put them into crates and house them that way is much, right, exactly, interleaf them, right, exactly. So, yes? You're referring to the installation at the Phillips of, of uh, Wolfgang Live, right? The, the room size installation, and I saw that uh, the the announcement that that was going to be happening at the time that we were working on this, and thinking, 
oh my goodness, I need to check in with them and see how they're dealing with that piece. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I haven't had a chance to check in yet. That would, no, and I'm interested to see how that, how the approach of that, because it's not something that you're walking on, it's a really sort of a different type of environment. Um, but, and, and, and what sort of level of, of degradation is acceptable and, and the type of interaction that you have with that space is, is clearly a little bit different than this, but. Mm-hmm, right. Yes? Just one other observation about my expectation level before coming here in person. I did see on the internet and then in the cards the photos of this exhibit, and somehow the very ephemeral and flashing note papers seemed in the images to be like bricks. And or some kind of concrete, which gives me a totally different impression from the actual concept of this piece. So the play of something attempting permanence mm -hmm. and the ephemeral quality of the actual piece affects my response to it. It's true, you're more aware of how fragile the papers are as they're moving, right? And I think it also points to the, what the artist was saying, that the need to have, a, we, we can't be without a fan. It's better to have a replacement fan than no fan because that element of the wind and the air current is, it really does affect, enliven the space, but also brings your eye, I think you're, you're right, to the ephemeral quality of, of the paper on the wall. Yes, Glenn. Um, does the depth of the vitrine pose certain, um, a certain obstacle when you're maintaining this on a weekly basis? Because it's much deeper than normal aquariums or terrariums. Yeah, this now this is the uh, this is the vitrine that is with the piece. This isn't just something that gets changed out, but the um, side opens. Okay. So I that agree. that actually is how um, they're accessed and and changed out each week. Yeah. I've seen different photos and some where there seem to be like so many snails and are there, I assume they're always the same number of snails. Are there always the same number of snails? Well, there is a number that's given in the installation instructions, a range. Um, we are on the lower end of the range. So yeah, there, there is sort of a, a range of numbers. I can't quite remember exactly how many, but um, this was, uh, I think by taking half here and half in the lab, that actually determined the number. <laughs> but no, she does have a specific range. And, you know, I feel like a lot of them are hiding under the leaves, though, too. <laughs> anyway, is that it? Are we? All right. Any more? All right. Well, thank you so much. Thank you very, very much.